So we're in the studio today with Lindsay, Lindsay Witzel. She is the co-owner of Versa Movement Collective. It's a physiotherapy, injury prevention, and sport development clinic in the northwest part of Calgary. Southwest. Southwest. Sorry. No, that's okay. And uh, so Lindsay's passion for active lifestyle, health and wellness blends into her passion to develop and grow business that drives real change in our community. Lindsay is motivated by the compassion and by the resilient stories that we hold uh, that make us who we are. Because as she learned through tragedy, when we listen closely, we learn that everyone has gone through something that has changed them forever. After watching her brother battle addiction for 17 years, and ultimately succumb to, to this disease, Lindsay, her husband Jordan, and their two boys strive to play a part in impactful social movement towards addiction and mental health awareness. Oh, I, sorry, I get emotional just even reading that. So we are going to jump right in. Let's do it. And let's talk about Ryan mm-hmm. and your family and your story. And I was thinking about this a lot and can you take us back um to just growing up with ryan and just tell us a little bit about who who he was absolutely and and that's it's an honor to do so my brother ryan was he was two years older than i was um when you think of protective brother that was ryan um i was his only sibling and he protected me whether it was from a uh, bad call in sports, uh, an unfair play in sports. Of course, boys later on in life. Uh, he was there, and he, from the moment I could remember, you know, and, and the stories my parents have, I grew up with a stutter, and so I was very delayed in speaking. And my parents have always told me the story that Ryan would speak for me. So mm-hmm. I was delayed. And I think I chose not to speak because Ryan was speaking for me. <laughs> so he would do all the speaking for me. Um, you know, and growing up, we played all the sports together. We had a lot of mutual friends. He was just, him and I were, were very close. Uh, I was his biggest fan. He was my biggest fan. He excelled at hockey. Um, growing up from, again, the time I can remember, I grew up on the side of the rink watching Ryan play hockey he taught me how to play hockey. He taught me how to skate. He wow. taught me how to shoot. Um, so we spent a lot of time together. He was just an all-around great guy, just a great brother. Family meant the world to him. Always had, always did. Um, you know, and I was thinking this morning, since you asked me to be on this podcast mm-hmm. a few days ago, I really took time to really think about Ryan. And family was always number one, was always his number one priority, even in the depths of his active addiction as he mm-hmm. got older. Um, you saw the core of him. Mm-hmm. So despite the deceit and despite the lying, the stealing, the hurtful words and actions he did, despite it all, he mm-hmm. knew layer by layer to his core, his family was number one. Mm-hmm. Even mm-hmm. when, unfortunately, drugs and alcohol became number one for a few Years, you knew in his heart, family mm-hmm. was number one, mm-hmm. no matter what. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, and so growing up, he was, he was, I think, of family and I think of hockey. And I think a lot of people who knew Ryan, who knew my brother, would say the same, especially with the hockey aspect. Um, that was his label, Ryan the hockey player. <laughs> so, and he excelled at a very young age. 
when when uh how old was he like when you were when you guys were at the rink like how old was he when he got involved in hockey has that just been oh gosh i'm gonna say three or four he was okay yeah so i was one two yeah yeah so almost like as soon as you could walk i can kind of relate to that our family was like that too Mm -hmm. yeah it's it's kind of a canadian it's it's a canadian heritage for sure totally totally absolutely and so when when did like to your knowledge when when did you know or become aware that something had shifted for him and actually before i before we jump into that what how would you describe your your family your family life like your your parents and yeah your family life you know just it was perfect and i know that's such a cliche to say um we're upper middle class Um, both my parents had great wonderful jobs they were the most caring loving involved parents you could ask for Mm-hmm. they were there for us. Mm-hmm. My parents have said countless times as I was growing up, no problem is too big that we can't solve. Yeah. And come to us for everything and anything. Mm-hmm. And we did. We did. We were that classic suburban family. Mm-hmm. So you really felt like you could, you could go to your parents and yeah. Absolutely. And Ryan felt that too. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. That was ingrained in us. Yeah. No problem is ever too big. Yeah. Yeah. So, so take us in where you noticed where it changed, when it started to change and, and why, why it started to change. So my, my theory, again, looking and my parents may have a different mm-hmm. perception. Totally. From yeah. a sister's point of view, I saw it really change in his later teen years maybe 16, 17, 18. Um, as I said, he was known as a hockey player. Mm-hmm. He didn't excel at school. He didn't enjoy school. Um, and he was a quiet, pretty introverted guy. And so growing up, hockey was, or as he felt, was the only thing he succeeded at. Mm-hmm. He struggled with school. Mm-hmm. Did not come easy to him. Um, I remember asking him, what do you want to be when you grow up when we were kids? And it was always the NHL. It was the NHL or bust. And that was his only answer. Wow. I mean, and he was slated to go, to go far. And he was, um, he was drafted at the youngest point he could be for the WHL. My, um, at the time, my parents thought, you know, he was a bit too immature. School wasn't his thing. Sending him away to how, the WHL. How old would he, he have been? He was 15 and a half. So he would have been 16 by the time okay. he left. And wow. he was just, my parents, and it was a parental decision that had to be made. Um, and he, so he decided to stay in BC and play a junior A and he had a fantastic junior A career. Um, but I think it was when he realized that the NHL was no longer a thing. Um, he did get into drugs and alcohol quite heavily. So what age would that have been when he had that revelation that he might not be like hockey might not be where he is? Okay. 18. And so what happened? What, how, how did he find that out? Like how? Just different circumstances. The junior A team he was on folded the second year. Okay. Then he went to junior B. And then in junior B, I believe, um, is when he got into drugs and alcohol. He was introduced to cocaine at a very high level of hockey. Okay. And Do I, you know how that happened? Can you I share? I don't know. You know, I don't know. I think... Yeah, I was just talking to my boys last week mm-hmm. about the culture of sports mm-hmm. 
and how, and I'm not sure if it's changed. I'm hoping it's changed. I know there's been a lot of talk about the hazing parties Mm -hmm. and the rookie parties and things that went on in the late nineties. Um, can you give us an example of what that, that's almost a whole other can of worms that you just opened up. I know. Like literally. Yeah. And I've been reading a lot about that. It's, I mean, sexual abuse, right? All of it. I mean, this is, this is a whole other podcast almost. It is. Absolutely. Yeah. So, you know, I remember when my brother played junior A, he was young. He was 16 years old. Yeah. Um, and these rookie parties. So he was well under the age of drinking. Totally. In BC, it was 19 years yeah. old. Regardless, yeah. he was young. Yeah. Um, and these these rookie parties were made and meant to humiliate and to, to have these rookies drink to the point of alcohol poisoning. You so know? they're vomiting, they're sick, so they're, they're yeah. blacking out. I remember he came home with a shaved head. Okay. Um, you know, just things like that, that would shape anybody. Yeah. And you want to talk, you know, and you think of trauma. I know trauma is a bit of a buzzword right now. Yeah. But that's traumatizing. So do you, do you ever recall Ryan coming home from some of these you know, the hazing parties, some of the hockey initiation, sport initiation things where you could, you knew something like it had impacted him. Did he ever disclose? He never did with me. I'm not sure if he has with my parents mm-hmm. or with my mom. Mm-hmm. Um, he didn't with me. But looking back, I mean, we jumped forward a couple of years and I was going by myself to, in the middle of the night, to some of the dodgiest neighborhoods in the Lower Mainland in Vancouver Mm -hmm. to search for him. He'd be gone for days and nights. So I'd go to shelters. I'd go to known drug houses just to look for his car, to look for him. Um, I remember one night he called me, middle of the night. I'll never forget this. He called me. I had, you know, back in the 90s, I had my personal phone in my yeah. in my room. And he called uh, saying, please pick me up. Here's where I'm at. So my dad and I jumped in the car. How old would he have been? 20. Okay. Yeah, he was really in the thick of it. So this is, this is when now he has had to basically say goodbye to his hockey yes. career. And, okay. Yeah. So now ryan the wonderful excellent hockey player that label's been ripped off Mm -hmm. and now there's another label on his back Mm -hmm. and i believe at that point he had been to rehab once already okay um so now there's a new label on him so he's no longer the wonderful great hockey player he's the addict Mm -hmm. he's the addict who threw his hockey career away he's the addict that never finished high school he's the addict that can't hold down a job so the label changed and his identity changed. And that it almost, listening to you, it almost sounds like it changed fairly quickly for him mm-hmm. to, like just that progression. Yeah. Because yeah, you're saying he kind of finished up with hockey around 18, mm-hmm. right? So the hazing parties, that whole sport culture and everything that goes with that. So that's really, that was his introduction to drugs, alcohol, like just that whole scene was through his hockey career. It was, yeah. Okay. And then would you say that he kind of participated in in it while he was still 
trying to build his hockey career? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Because it just kind of comes with the territory, doesn't it? I think so. And with him being an introvert um, and shy, you know, shy. Totally. He even said, when I drink alcohol, he has the confidence. Absolutely. He's funny. He's, you know, he's out there. He's suddenly the life of the party. Mm -hmm. Something he didn't have when he was sober. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I felt like he didn't have, I should say. Mm -hmm. So then... Okay, so then that's happening, and then 18. So do you know exactly what happened that just made him have to, like he had to hang up his skates kind of thing? Like, no, You know, I think it was an internal thing with him. I think it was a mental thing, a mental struggle with him, is that if he knew he wasn't going to make it um, to the NHL and he started playing a lower level of junior B, and then, of course, it's the people you surround yourself with. You mm-hmm. know, his his teammates in junior B knew that they weren't make it to the NHL. So it was less training, more partying. Okay. Right? Whereas junior A or WHL, these these kids are... There's committed. a focus. Yes. They're focused and there's no shit. Happening. Yes, yes, yes. And they're under more of a watchful eye. Absolutely. Now with junior B, there's more freedom. Okay. And I'm sure a lot of these players were feeling the same as yeah. Brian. That, shoot, their dreams are slipping through their fingers. Yeah. Now what? Yeah, yeah. They're yeah. young, let's party and play hockey. Totally, totally. Yeah. Okay, so that was around 18. And mm-hmm. then so so he did not graduate. He did not. School no. then. So was that before the hockey thing ended or just all kind of around the same time? All kind of around the same time. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Okay, so then hockey's done. He he's, hasn't graduated, dropped out of school. Where, where, where was your family at, your parents at when this is happening? Cause I can imagine, I, I, I mean, I know what yeah. I've gone through, right. Yeah. Um, with Eden and you kind of, you know, you see the signs, you see stuff happening. Like you, it's in, it's in the home. You try to keep it in the home. You don't, you know, it's not like you want to talk about this at dinner with friends. Yeah. Right. And so where, what was happening for you guys, like behind closed doors kind of thing as, cause you must have seen that he was slipping or starting to fall fall apart like dive in deeper diving a nosedive and it felt a time it felt like a nosedive and at the time our home the happy easy going home that I mean growing up my home too was the home for all my friends my parents knew all my friends you know and they were that was a safe place for people always Mm -hmm. and so suddenly it wasn't and the shame um the turmoil the anger, the confusion, the disbelief. You can't believe that your family is being torn apart by addiction. Mm-hmm. You, I, I couldn't believe I had a brother who was addicted to drugs. Mm-hmm. I didn't know anybody, anybody in my life who had a sibling who was addicted to drugs or I didn't know. That you knew of, yeah. That I knew of, right? And my parents, the same thing. They didn't know anybody mm-hmm. um, that they knew of, of course, mm-hmm. right? So... Mm-hmm. Um, I remember the weight of the shame and I feel silly. I feel ridiculous saying this, but I remember back in the early nineties, early two thousands, the weight of the shame that I was carrying. And then I think if I felt that weight, I can't imagine the weight on Ryan's shoulders. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So when you, I want to, I'd like to dig into that a little bit. Um, so the shame, the disbelief, um, 
basically your life is being turned upside down. So you would have been how old when this is happening? Grade 11. Okay, so you're 16. 17. And so what are some of, even just one memory, what, what is one memory or one incident where it sort of opened the door, so to speak, for shame, disbelief, like embarrassment, what's happening to my family, like what, what the heck? What, can you share an incident when, when it was like things are different? Hmm. I remember my brother was missing. I mean, he was gone for days and nights, let's say three or four nights. And I remember the panic in my mom's face and the panic of my dad's face and them trying to, to, to decide what do we do? Where do we go? Where do we get help? And it was the frantic, the frantic motions of not knowing where to turn. Um, and then Ryan strolled in. And after he was using or when he was using, they, he used to get this look on his face and in, those, in his eyes. And I'll never forget it. And he walked up the stairs and went to his room. Can you describe that look? Distant. A shell of a person. Mm-hmm. You know, and I know people say that eyes are windows to somebody's soul. Mm-hmm. And his soul was gone. His soul was no longer he wasn't the brother I could rely on. He wasn't, he wasn't my protector suddenly. Mm -hmm. And I remember that shift and suddenly I became the protector and I went to his room and I sat on his bed and I cried and I pleaded with him to get help. And I asked if there's what I could do, what is wrong? Why is he doing this? I wanted answers. And he yelled and screamed and pushed me out of his room. And I remember thinking, this is it. My brother's on drugs and there's nothing I can do. It's a very helpless feeling, as you know. Mm-hmm. You just want to shake them. Mm-hmm. You want to hit them. Mm-hmm. You want to take everything away from them. And you want to lock them in their room. Mm-hmm. And there's nothing you could do. Is that for you? Is that when it really hit you the first time? That it did. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I'm sure there's stories where he was missing for a few days. My parents didn't tell me. Mm-hmm. And I'm sure they said, oh, he's sleeping at so-and-so's or he's out here. And, mm-hmm. you know, so, but it was that moment when I looked him in the face and I begged and pleaded and there was nothing there. Mm-hmm. He didn't want it. Didn't want to hear me. Didn't want anything to do with us as a family. And so where, where did that go from there for you guys? Oh, it tore us apart. I remember it tore our relationship apart. I remember, I remember the anger and I dealt with the anger for a lot of those 17 years and dealt with that same anger even years after he had passed away. But I remember the first time I really, truly felt anger, um, to see what it was doing to my parents, um, to see what it was doing to the house my parents' mental health, physical health, can their you sh- marriage. Can you share a little bit about that? You know, I don't remember my parents ever fighting growing mm-hmm. up. Um, of course, there's disagreements and arguments. Yeah, yeah, Nothing ever. And I remember it got to a point years into his active addiction where they were almost at different ends of the spectrum. Mm-hmm. You know, my mom had had enough. And she, there was points in, and I'm 
there's points where she said, I'm done. Mm -hmm. I don't want him in this house. Mm -hmm. I don't want him near the family Mm -hmm. because he was stealing and all of this. Oh, I get it. And there's my dad who says, no son of mine, no child of mine will ever be living on the streets. We don't do that. That's not how we raise the family. That's not how we're doing it. Mm -hmm. We've always said no problem ever too big. And so I remember at the time when they were in different points in their own equal rights. Mm-hmm. Um, and that was scary for me. And that caused more anger to think mm-hmm. if there, if this person is going to cause my parents to divorce, mm-hmm. I couldn't fathom that idea. Like now when you look back on that, like just even that right there, just with your parents and the different, um, paradigms that they're each experiencing have you taken the time or thought about what was going on for each of them underneath that and especially I find it interesting because I I can so relate uh, to all of this I know even what this what a story like this was like to have to go through back then do you know what I mean before we were more open about addiction even just your dad's comment of like no son of mine Mm -hmm. will be like you know what I mean it's like there's so much that he's actually saying there and there's so much that he's so afraid of you know because of the the shame the stigma like this is not happening to our white picket fence family exactly like and so can you just share a little bit about I guess just your the awareness your awareness around your parents and what and what was happening like now when I look yeah now when I look back and again my I have two boys 11 and 8 yeah so you're a parent now too yeah Yeah. and I think of you know again seems silly but I think of the arguments my husband and I have about my oldest diet. He doesn't eat enough protein, mm-hmm. you know, and Jordan will say he's enough. Don't worry about it. And I say, he's not eating enough. So two different paradigms there on a yeah. much, much, much yeah. smaller scale. But then, you know, you always think of parenting as you're going to be a team. Yeah. You're going to raise these little people together. Right. Yeah. And so I can't, and this is where I get emotional because I can't imagine having to make these decisions for your child. And they, my parents always came back together, always, no matter what. And here they are now, happily married. Um, but there were times in the 17 years where they were on completely separate ends of the spectrum. And I can't imagine what that would feel like. Mm-hmm. But they always came back mm-hmm. together, stronger than ever. Mm-hmm. I can't imagine. I look at my two children now and I just can't imagine what my parents went through. Mm-hmm. I sat there and I saw it all. I witnessed it. I, I felt it. I lived mm-hmm. it. But I still don't know. Mm-hmm. I still don't know the pain and the anguish and the anger and the disbelief that they went through mm-hmm. as a parent. So you, when you, you say like this went on for 17 years, mm-hmm. so what what was the timeline? So it kind of started, we talked about that, 16, 17, but it really didn't kind of plummet until he was about 18. 18, 19, 20, um, 21, and you know, he'd be 
clean for a couple months and dive back in and clean for a couple months and dive back in. He went to rehab again. Um, I'm now thinking all my age, the years are blending together, but Mm -hmm. maybe at 25, he went back to rehab and you know, with rehab and with AA and and NA meetings, he always came out with such hope Mm -hmm. and such motivation and such devotion to the Mm -hmm. programs and it was so refreshing to see and he would hang on to it for as long as he could Mm -hmm. and I think the disconnect with that is that he had nowhere to go after rehab he had he had his NA meetings and his AE meetings and as great and and pivotable as they were for him he still couldn't live his true self to the core. There was no athletic endeavor he could go on. Mm-hmm. You know, he tried to play pickup hockey or men's league. Mm-hmm. They drink beer mm-hmm. after mm-hmm. every game. Mm-hmm. They go to the pub after every game, and he never had the confidence to say, no, thank you. Mm-hmm. So he just didn't play hockey. Mm-hmm. There was no sense of hope or pride for him outside of his meetings or rehab. And I think... That's the biggest disconnect for him back then. Okay, so do you think that, exactly what you're describing, do you think that was due to where our culture, like our society was, like just the shame, the stigma? Like 100%. I could not agree more. Wow. And I've said to you, and I know I've said Mm -hmm. to you, if only Ryan hung on for a couple more years, you would have changed his life. The Terminator Foundation without a doubt would have changed the course of his life. But there was a reason. Yeah. Everything, I mean, I've always believed things happen for a reason. Totally, yeah. You know, we cross paths and it's, this is why we're doing this now. Yeah. And the, the amount of lives you're changing now with the, term, the, with the Terminator Foundation, with the awareness. Like I said, back in the 90s and early 2000s, we didn't talk about Ryan's addiction. Yeah. There's no way. Yeah. So how how long, I want to touch on that for a minute. How long were you guys silent for? How long was this just your quiet family burden? Because it is a burden to have to deal with this on your own. I would say just the four of us was probably two years. And then we started opening up. Okay. But even in those discussions, and as well-intentioned as they were, and we we have amazing extended family. I have a million cousins and aunts Mm -hmm. and uncles, and they are all so great and wonderful. My grandparents are really understanding and great. But the conversations typically were always, "Mm, how's Ryan? Yeah. You know, and it was there was always a negative tone. Mm-hmm. Like, what's the latest drama with mm-hmm. Ryan? Mm-hmm. And it was again well intentioned. They wanted to be there for us, and not just my family, friends too, the the extended hockey community as well. Mm-hmm. There was always that negative. Mm, how's your brother? You know, and it's like it's easier to be like, fine, he's getting on. So how did that? How, how did that feel? What what kind of what kind of message do you think that that sends? And how and how do people feel on the other end of that? Because this is so, like you and I both know, what you're talking about and what you're describing, 
millions of people are mm-hmm. have gone through this, going through this. You know what I mean? And and for people out there listening, because I oh my gosh, I could totally relate mm-hmm. to even what you're saying, right? Like just that whole and even the way you look when you say it, right? It's like, oh, how is Ryan? Yeah. Like you poor little thing. Absolutely. Right. It was the same. Like, oh, how's Eden? Yeah. How are you holding that? Mm-hmm. Okay. So one, how did that feel for you? And how, how could we do that better? What would be your, if you could, if you could give two bits of wisdom or insight into talking to someone now with that has a family member struggling, like, how do you, how do you wish people would have responded? You know, I think that initial response, um, is basically putting gas, gasoline on the fire. That's shame. It just grew my shame. Absolutely. It just, it, I, I don't want to talk about it. It's, it's skeletons in my closet. Um, big black strike against my family. I don't, that's not who we are. Mm-hmm. That's not who we are. And I say that, and I think addiction isn't who Ryan was, but here we are just labeled mm-hmm. with addiction. There's so much more to my family, and there's so much more to Ryan mm-hmm. than his addiction. Um, and I think even in the six years, so Ryan passed away, it was six years last week, as you know. Yeah. And even in the six years since his death, the movement that I've witnessed moving forward is n- night and day. I mean, we still have a long way to mm-hmm. go. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. We have a long way to go. I'm with you, Linz. Yeah. But it is remarkable to see just how far we've come in six years. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So I think my one piece of advice on how we can change that stigma is tell your stories. We all have stories. Mm-hmm. And what I found out is the more I spoke, the more open up I did, the more opening up I did, the more you learn addiction, unfortunately, is everywhere. Mm-hmm. And it affects so many people mm-hmm. in so many families on all planes of mm-hmm. life. Mm-hmm. You could be a pilot. You could be a lawyer. You could be a hockey player. You could be a soccer player. You could be mm-hmm. a mom, a dad, a mm-hmm. grandparent. I mean, it's... It affects everybody. Mm-hmm. So I believe the more you speak, the more you tell your story. Drugs or not, alcohol or not, mm-hmm. we all have a lot of stuff going mm-hmm. on in our heads. Yeah, right? We've absolutely. all seen and been and experienced a lot of things. How, how has this impacted you personally, being Ryan's sister and having to... You know, when I said in my, my post last week, so I'd like to commemorate him as much as I can. And he taught me, he was, like I said, a great brother. He taught me how to throw a spiral. He taught me how to skate. He taught me all the important things of childhood. And he taught me a lot. But since his death, he has taught me so much, so much about strength, commitment, perseverance um, and to really want to remove that stigma Mm -hmm. he's the reason why I'm doing this Um, 
Yeah. Wow. How are your um, How are your parents? You know what? They're doing great. They're doing well. Um, those days are always hard. Mm-hmm. His birthday and the day that we lost him. Totally. And they're hard. And you see them coming. You see those dates coming from a mile away. Mm-hmm. And you never know. For me, I never know how I'm going to feel on those days. Mm-hmm. And my parents, they're just remarkable people. Um, all my friends mm-hmm. say the same. Mm-hmm. Um, they spent 17 years in hell. <clears throat> in parental hell, as I'm sure you can relate. Mm-hmm. And Ryan passed away in August. And in February that year, they went to Mexico with my mom's brother and his wife. And I'll never forget. I'll never forget. They all FaceTime me from, I think they were on a boat doing something. And to hear my parents laugh um, and carry on like that, that will be ingrained in my brain forever because it was just six short months that they lost their son. Yet at the same time, I felt their freedom for the first time in 17 years. They could go away and have fun and laugh Mm -hmm. and be themselves without worrying about what's happening at home. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think, I like to think that they know he's free. I mean, I know he's free now from the pain that he endured from the battle, from the fight. Mm -hmm. And in a way they are too. Mm -hmm. Um, So they're embracing life, Mm -hmm. you know, and they're, they were, they were put on this earth to be grandparents. <laughs> um, and they, we were very close with them. And, and I know that, I mean, and you too, I mean, it's <laughs> the joy yeah. that they get. And as Slade, my oldest gets older, he looks more and more like my brother. Wow. And as great as that is, it takes my breath away at times too. Um, he's all about hockey a thousand percent. Mm-hmm. He eats, breathes and sleeps hockey. And just as nature would have it, he is the hardest core Jets fan, Winnipeg Jets fan, <laughs> as was my brother. And wow. so, and that's things I didn't teach. Yeah. I didn't say, hey, yeah. the Jets are our yeah. team. You do that. Yeah. When he was young, he chose that. And it, so I see there's just so much resemblance. And wow. Yeah. Can you walk us through just the end? What the end started to, because you mentioned that Ryan had been through, had, he had gone through treatment. Mm-hmm. How many times did he? Three times. Three times. All here in Calgary? like So we're living in Vancouver. Okay. Um, and okay. But he came to Alberta for the treatments. Oh, okay. Fort McMurray, I believe. Okay. Was where it was. Um, and then he, I believe there's one in Vancouver as well. And then he was living in a group home. Okay. Mm-hmm. Things were going... You know, when he was living in the group home in Vancouver, so I'm going to say 2012, 2013, mm-hmm. that was the healthiest he had ever been. He looked healthy. He sounded healthy. He had this this love for life again. Mm-hmm. And he, had, he was on a softball team. Okay. He was on a softball team surrounded by really great supportive people who've also gone through the program. Mm-hmm. And he was just this great, healthy guy. Yeah. And then he moved out here. My parents retired out here. Okay. And he came out to be with a family. Yeah. And that's when the struggles started. 
So again, I believe he didn't have that outlet Mm -hmm. or a place he could go. So like his own community of, Mm -hmm. yeah. Mm -hmm. Outside of the meetings. Yes, absolutely. And again, the meetings are fantastic and they really helped Mm -hmm. him. But that extra step outside of the meetings Mm -hmm. where he could go for a run Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and he could play sports and he could do his thing without this big cloud of addiction Mm -hmm. or addict over him. Mm -hmm. And so that was, I think, the beginning of the end. Um, He was doing well. He was still clean and sober, but he was struggling mentally more than ever while he was here. Um, He was engaged to be married. Wow. Had a great job. Um, doing his thing, loved being around my children, and he was just a wonderful, great uncle. Uh, really took pride in that. How long had he had he been sober during this time? Uh, five years. Five years. Five years. He was clean and sober, figuring life out, working really, really hard. That's a long sobriety. time. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and then the relationship with his fiance ended on his terms wasn't a bad horrible ugly mm-hmm. thing just mm-hmm. they, they decided not to get married and to not continue on with their relationship and he decided to move back to vancouver and it was august long weekend that year and he just made a poor decision a poor decision uh that led to the use of drugs and took one evening and it stopped his heart So he was sober for five years. Mm -hmm. He relapsed Mm -hmm. and died. Mm -hmm. Yes. It's It's heartbreaking. It is. It is. He um, he was doing well. And then suddenly he wasn't. Mm -hmm. I can't even... I just can't even imagine the shock for you and your family because it's... Like to have five years in like that... And please correct me if I'm wrong, but I I would only imagine that it felt like you guys were never going back to that old life. Do you know what I mean? It's true. Of Ryan being in active addiction, like you probably thought it's just up from here. Mm-hmm. You know, like it's just, we're just going to, this is life now. Yeah, it's true. You know, and there's always that little voice in the back of my head. Always. I don't think that would have ever disappeared. But he was healthy. Mm-hmm. Again, he was struggling mentally, mm-hmm. but he was working through it. He was showing up. He was doing the work. And then suddenly he wasn't. So when you say he was struggling mentally, like was he having anxiety, some depression? Yeah, anxiety, depression. Yeah. Um, struggling with certain medications. Okay. Um, there was talk about um, concussions from hockey. Okay. That, I mean, that's a whole other podcast. Totally. Well. Absolutely. That playing a role yeah. in his moods and his motivations. And 
Um, but like I said, he was he's shown up. We were working out together. I remember him coming over saying, you got to tell me what to eat. And so we'd do up a nutrition plan, and we'd work out, and we'd, you know, like he was there. He wanted So you had so your bad. brother back. I did. I did. And my kids had this great uncle. Yeah. And Jordan had a phenomenal brother-in-law. Yeah. My parents had their son. Wow, let's see. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so where did that take you guys after that? So, so he left, he was in Vancouver by himself with his best, 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 best childhood lifelong friend. He moved in with him and this friend has been a rock Ryan's entire life. He never touched drugs, always steered Ryan in the right direction, was always his person mm-hmm. when he needed him. Mm-hmm. He was there, I believe, for two nights. And Ryan had asked Chad for money. And Chad said, absolutely not. Not under this roof. I will never give you money. So did Chad, did he kind of have like a red flag that he was okay? Yeah. 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 Chad was, Chad read Ryan very well. And so they got into a bit of an argument. Mm-hmm. And Ryan left that night. And it was the Monday night because he was starting a new job on Tuesday. And um, Chad, bless his heart, could hear Ryan's alarm going. Um, and he went into Ryan's room. And he was unresponsive. So Chad is the one that had to make the call. And yes. Yep. Chad called me. My parents were on vacation in Manitoba visiting family, and they were on the golf course with all of my mom's siblings, and I had to make that phone call. Can you share a little bit about what that was like for you? Out-of-body experience. At the same time, yet I was—I had to find the strength. I had to pull it together. Yeah. Um, so Chad had called to let me know that paramedics were working on Ryan. I called my uncle because my dad wasn't answering his phone. Mm-hmm. Um, and as soon as my uncle picked up, I said, "Can I speak to my dad?" And I could—I could feel him just get—he knew. My mm-hmm. uncle knew. I said to my dad, Ryan's unresponsive. The paramedics are working on him. Chad's with him. Um, and I just, I'll never just forget the, the sound of my dad's voice. And I just, it was, it just makes my chest hurt thinking about it. He hung up the phone and the police called my dad when Ryan had passed. So when there was no longer a chance of survival... And he was pronounced dead. They called my parents. My parents then called me. And I can't even tell. I can't even tell you. I can't even. It was like I was looking at myself from another angle. Yeah. And I just took it upon myself to call the rest of my family in Winnipeg to help receive my parents because they were just outside of Winnipeg. And I said, here's what happened. And again, my aunts and uncles just rallied around and made sure they were safe and good. 
the next day we all met in Vancouver to start that process. devastating and it's um, devastating. it is and it just changed us forever yeah but you know silver lining maybe it's changed changed us for the good i know that there's aspects of our lives that have changed for the good because of ryan's story yeah and because of his journey i mean my children know about drugs and we will always have an open and honest conversation they know mm-hmm. there's no hiding yeah and we've had we have deep conversations about drugs and alcohol and yeah, mental illness. Yeah, yeah. I. Uh, it's funny you should say that because I really I'm a big believer in that too. That um, some of the worst things that happen to us can turn out to be some of the best things that could have ever happened to us. Mm-hmm. As oxymoronish as mm-hmm. that is, you know what I mean? Absolutely. Yeah, and I. I mean, I know, like, going through what I went through with Eden and everything, that was the worst thing that I, one of, one of the worst things I've ever been through, but it's one of the best things that I've ever been through. Right. You know, like, just what it, I think the human spirit is powerful beyond measure and even what we can comprehend until we have to walk out some of these things, right? And just like your story, you know, and, and your parents' story, and even Chad, mm-hmm. you know, and your family, Jordan. Yeah. Like, it, it's impacted so many people. And each in our own unique way. Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. You know, which is, you know, we all have a different perspective of Ryan's journey, and it's all touched us and impacted us, impacted us differently. Yeah. Um, yeah. Where, where are you now? Where are you today with all this? Like you mentioned, you know, six, it was six years last week. You have, you're not the same person. It's impacted your life. It's changed your life. It's added to your life. It's grown it's grown you, but you have also witnessed a transformation in our society. Mm-hmm. And so where, where are you today and what, just actually, well, where are you today? Where are you today with all this? I'm grateful. I'm grateful for today. Um, I'm grateful for Ryan's journey, grateful for my parents and I can say with confidence that shame is gone. I talk about Ryan probably at least once a day. And it's not, oh, my brother was an addict. It was mm-hmm. my brother suffered from addiction and he lost that battle. And I say it with confidence. And I say it with hope. And I say it with pride because he has shaped me. He shaped me as a child. He shaped me. He helped shape me as a teen and a young adult. And he has shaped who I am right now in all different ways throughout my life. Yeah. That's awesome. I I love that. I really, and I can so relate to that, that just that, uh, that 180, 
you know, going from feeling absolutely smothered in shame to such a strong conviction, hey, of just that, yeah, just the total flip side of shame. I don't even know what that's called, but just the... Is it pride? Is it... Yeah, like, yeah. It's, this is, the thing is, addiction's out there. Yeah. The numbers don't lie. And yes. they are yes. scary Lindsay. as hell. Yes, yes. And why hide in shame? Yes. When we will all know somebody. Yeah. Our children will know somebody. Your, the grandchildren will know somebody who is affected mm-hmm. by addiction. Mm-hmm. Addiction and mental health. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. So let's get ahead of this as a yes. society. Why? yes. Why are we not? Mm-hmm. We are. There's steps. Yeah. A long way to go. Oh, I'm so with you. Yeah. I'm so with you there. Um, so, so kind of in closing, I guess, for someone out there in your position right now, a sister, you know, maybe there's parents listening or a parent of a son, a daughter, what would you want to share with that family? Addiction is not a death sentence. It doesn't have to be a death sentence. There's hope. There's resources. And today, mm-hmm. more than ever, there is love and acceptance and compassion for people and youth, our youth, mm-hmm. our community who suffers with addiction. Mm-hmm. There's hope. And there's no need to bury your head. Mm-hmm. And going back to what I said earlier, tell your story because people are living and walking the same journey you are right now. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. Oh, Lindsay, I'm, I'm so um, just really grateful for you. And I'm, I'm so grateful. I remember the first time that we met and it was actually at one of our earlier Terminator runs, like several years ago. Yeah. And then when we were able to reconnect again, what was that? Like two years ago Mm -hmm. now. And yeah, I, I'm just so grateful for, for your support, you know, with Terminator and with what we're doing, but just even more than that, I just your story, your friendship, your understanding, your compassion, you know, just knowing that there's another person out there. Even if we have that one person to know that we're not alone, right? Absolutely. Yeah. And I, and just knowing that I have that one person out there, like you're that one person for me that I know that it's like how you were saying that Ryan used to talk for you, you know, like we could talk for each other. Absolutely. You know, cause we get it. We do. You know, and I, somebody asked me how long I've known you and I said four, five years and going back to the first time I met you at the Terminator run, then you think it's only been four or five years. Yeah. And it's like, I've known you in a good way yeah. for a lot longer. Yeah. And, um, and I have to say that I'm, the feelings mutual, um, I don't know if I can ever express how grateful I am 
to get to know you and get to be involved in the Terminator Foundation and just your life in general and how therapeutic this has been for me. And you put that name on it last last year when I said, Let, what can I do? How can I help? And you always come so humbly if you ask for a favor, ask if I want to be a part of something. Um, and you named it and you said, okay, so maybe this is your way of you know, giving back or therapeutic for you. And it is. Being involved in the small part that I am in the Terminator Foundation has been such a cleansing, therapeutic way to honor Ryan and honor his struggles and change change the path mm-hmm. for our youth who are suffering right now. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Like, yeah, amen. <laughs> right? Seriously. And I, and I know because it's like, and I think of it that with Eden too, right? Eden, Ryan, like there's so many Ryans in the world, right? There's so many Edens in the world. There's so many, there's, I mean, there, there's so many of these stories and these kids and these youth and it just, it just looks different, but it's all, it, uh, it's, it's important. These stories are important. And I just, I, I actually want to put a little plug in for you. (laughs) I just, I really want to mention just Versa Movement Collective Physiotherapy. And so, um, (laughs) Lindsay totally did not put me up to this. This is all on my own, but they are a very, uh, we're so grateful to have them as a supporter for the Terminator Foundation and, and Versa Movement. Um, they totally take care of all of our athletes free of charge. And, uh, they just take care of our guys from top to bottom. But I just, I want to have a little shout out for Versa Movement. Um, please look for them on social media. Um, we'll maybe add some links and stuff like that. Uh, so people can find them, but they are a top of the line, top notch. Um, the clinic is beautiful and yeah. And just Evan and your crew are amazing, like actually amazing. And so if you guys are looking for (laughs) physiotherapy, check out Versa Movement, honestly. Yeah. They're, and they're part of the community. Like you're actually, you know, you put your money where your mouth is kind of thing. Right. And you have done that with your business and you and Evan have really stepped up and, uh, and, and you're, you're doing that. You're, you're, you're right in there. You're right in there with us, you know, fighting this and, and taking part in this movement. And I like even what you called it, this social movement, you know, for addiction and mental health. And, and it's so important. And I just want to have say a shout out to your mom and dad. Oh, thank you. They're yeah, I love that. Yeah, and I just I'm so appreciate you guys, Lindsay's mom and dad for just being willing and allowing Lindsay to share your 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 beautiful story and and just remembering Ryan and how amazing he was and how awesome he was and that it's addiction is nothing to be ashamed of. Mental health is nothing to be ashamed of. And uh, so we're just, yeah, we, I just thank you for being here today, for taking us on this journey. And uh, I'm, I'm so grateful to you and your family for allowing us to have, um, to be able to share this on the podcast and just on this platform. And I hope this has touched 
someone out there, even if it's touched one person, I believe it will touch many more than just mm-hmm. one person. Uh, and if it has, please pass it forward. You never know who needs to hear this story. And um, I just thank you again, Lindsay, for being here today. And I can speak for my parents and I both will say it's an honor and we will speak Ryan's name and Ryan's story and his journey for as long as we live. So thank you. Yeah, thank you. Thanks everyone for listening. You can find us on Spotify, podcast, Apple podcast, and this, uh, yeah, it's been a great episode. Thank you, Lindsay, for joining us on the Ordinary Courage podcast. Thanks everyone. Thanks everyone.